If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Revelation and take a quick left, you'll find the tiny letter of Jude. We have just finished this initial section in the book of Revelation that walks through these letters from Jesus to the seven churches. And by way of recap, just be reminded of the central warning to these churches or what is going on in their churches. Uh, To the church at Ephesus, we see a lot of action, but this is a church that had abandoned their first love. To the church at Smyrna, Facing persecution with more difficult hardship on the way. And if you remember, God was or Jesus was very sober with them about the coming uh, persecution that would even ramp up and that they may even have to give their lives for. To the church at Pergamum, we see a church that's holding fast to the truth in a difficult place, but not dealing with some dangerous internal threats to the church. So there was a word of warning there to them. To the church at Thyatira, faithful in their love and faith, but not willing to deal with the threat of a dangerous presence. An individual in their midst was dangerous, and the church was not being careful to deal with that danger. To the church at Sardis, despite a reputation for being alive, they are really spiritually dead. To the church in Philadelphia, this is the church with perceived little influence, but are mighty in the Lord. And then finally, last week, to the church at Laodicea, this was the lukewarm church situated in a place of great prosperity. And at this point in our study through Revelation, Gerald wanted us to just back up to heed the encouragement, heed the exhortation of Jude in writing to the church. He is going to warn us about the presence of falsehood, the presence of false teaching that can creep into the church often unnoticed, and just how dangerous that can be for us. And I think that that is going to be a good swinging point from the study through the seven churches and now on to the rest of this vision that John is going to have in Revelation. I would not be lying, or I would be lying if I didn't tell you that I'm a little mad at Gerald. He told me several weeks ago, I would like for you to preach on March 21st, and he looked at his schedule and he said, Revelation 4, and I was like, wow. Revelation 4, I get to look and be invited into the throne room of God and see him exalted and get to walk through this. And then Gerald pulls the rug right under my feet just a couple of weeks ago and says, no, this is where I would like for us to take step back and look at the book of Jude. I'm just kidding. I'm not mad at Gerald. Gerald, I love you. We miss you this morning. And I appreciate the opportunity to walk through this short epistle and the opportunity to walk through it with you this morning. And I want to focus, uh, we are not going to do an expositional study all the way through the the letter of Jude, okay? So fret not, all right? Um, We just don't have time for that. And really that would take six or eight weeks to do a series just to walk through this epistle and uh, be able to look at all the elements that are there and really see everything that's going on. Um, A large section of this is the middle part, verses 5 through 16, where Jude is walking through reminding this congregation of things in the past that they need to remember as as he issues these warnings. Um, We are not going to walk expositionally through that section. I know some of you are like, oh, man, because there's some there's some crazy stuff through there. Um, We just don't have time to get into all of that this morning. And that's not the purpose for the study this morning. I want us to hear Jude's heart. 
and how he warns the people of God, both this church and us this morning. Okay, so we're going to focus on the first part, his greeting, and we're going to focus on the last part. We will read the whole epistle so we get the whole picture this morning. But that's just to give you a roadmap of where we're going. And for the sake of time, we will not take the time to read all the way through the epistle. We'll just dive in and start working through verse by verse. Okay, so let's pray and let's ask God to help us with that task today. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the way your spirit leads us. Thank you for what your spirit has already been doing in our midst through this study in Revelation. Thank you um, that we have these mirrors to look into. God, I think it would be folly for us to try to step back and consider whether we see ourselves in one of these churches. The truth is we see ourselves in all of them. All of them pose a warning to us. All of them pose a word to us. And so, God, thank you for the great care uh, Pastor Gerald has taken over the last several weeks and walking us through that and holding that mirror up for us. And, God, I pray that we would be faithful to continually look in that mirror. And then as James admonishes us that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we would see ourselves in the mirror of your word and we would be doers of your word as well. Father, help us to heed these warnings today from Jude. God, help us to see the warnings that we need to be aware of. I pray that this morning would help us to be sober-minded, to realize the ongoing nature of these threats to us, your body. And God, at the end of the day, I pray that we would just have a bigger view of who you are, the one who is able to keep us by your power. Father, fill our vision with yourself this morning. Help us to see Jesus for who he really is today. And God, I pray that at the end of the day, we wouldn't be scared and running to create barriers around ourselves, but we would be in hot pursuit of knowing Christ. God, do that in our hearts today as we walk through your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So you can follow along on your sermon notes there, and you'll see the first thing is there in the greeting. And Jude calls us to remember who we are. Remember who you are. Look at the first two verses with me there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This greeting is to believers, and it is by Jude who speaks of himself as a slave of Jesus and a brother of James, even superseding any familial relationship that Jude had with Jesus on this planet. He is a slave of Jesus. Isn't that incredible that he recognizes that that is who he is, that Jesus is Lord. And then notice what he says to believers. You are called, he says. This speaks of God's effectual calling to us. And it conveys the idea to us that you are sought, you are pursued, and you are won by him. Jude reminds us that we are called by God. We are loved by him. This and the next term is in the present tense, which means it's a settled reality. You are loved. You are loved by God. If you are in Christ this morning, you are loved by God. And this is the only place In the New Testament, where the phrase loved by God, the father appears. Do you notice that? You are loved by God, the father, settled reality. And then he says you are kept again in the perfect tense to settled reality. And Jude is going to use this word five times through this epistle. And it's not all aimed at the believer that God is keeping certain people for things 
that he is purposeful in his plan. And for believers, we can rest in the fact that he keeps us. You are kept by him. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. We are kept by him. He is keeping those who are in Christ for his glory. And brothers and sisters, we can revel in the fact this morning that his grip is firm. We are kept in him. And look at what he has for us. Mercy, peace, and love multiplied. Mercy, peace, and love multiplied. First, mercy. Paul writes in Romans 9, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now listen to the contrast in verse 23 of of, of those who are his. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Do you see yourself in Christ today as a vessel of mercy? That we are a vessel and God is pouring his mercy into us and it is filling us to overflowing. That is who we are. We are vessels of mercy. As sinful as we are, as far as we fall short, because we are justified in Christ, we are vessels of his mercy. And later he's going to say that because we are vessels of his mercy, it is to spill over that we are to be instruments of mercy. We are people of peace and that peace is extended to us. This word speaks of shalom. It's not just peace in a lack of chaos. It is wholeness. It is completeness in him, often in the midst of chaos, in the midst of danger. And the truth is, as his people, we are always invited to rest in his peace, to rest in his wholeness, to rest in his completeness. And this peace has two aspects that we need to understand this morning. First is an external peace. Romans 5, 1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our peace is external. It's our peace with God because of Jesus being united with him. But it's also an internal peace. It's not just peace with God. It's the peace of God. Listen to what it says in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything. Why? But in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the why. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. He is our eternal peace. And understand this. This is so important. I remember us talking about this when we were working through Ephesians 2. Listen to how important this is. Out of the abundance of his character. God doesn't just have mercy that he gives us. He doesn't just have peace that he gives us. He doesn't just have love that he gives us. It is his character. He is mercy. He is peace. He is love. So out of the abundance of his character, he not only allows us who are in Christ to taste these treasures, but he intends to fill us to overflowing with them in the knowledge of him. He doesn't just want to give these to us as gifts. He wants us to experience them in him. He is the storehouse of these things because they are central to his character. And because we are in him, because we are in Christ, those things are made available to us. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are in Christ Jesus. And that's where Jude begins his message. But then he tells us that we need to steward the faith. We need to steward the faith 
Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this com, uh, condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude, in the short epistle, is going to issue seven charges to his readers. And the first has to do with stewardship of God's truth. Brothers and sisters, do you know that in Christ your greatest stewardship is the gospel? That is our greatest stewardship. That surpasses every other stewardship we have. That's not the only area that God calls us to be stewards in, but it is the greatest thing that we have to, that we have to steward. It is the greatest treasure that we have to steward. We are to be stewards of the gospel. A few weeks ago as I was leading a gospel training for My Life Matters and, and Brett, I made this point that our stewardship has two aspects and both of them are important. The first aspect is we are to guard the gospel. The gospel has been given to us. We'll talk about that in just a second. We are to guard the sanctity of the gospel's message. It's not ours to toy with. It's not ours to change. That's one aspect of our stewardship. The second aspect is we are to proclaim it. It's good news. News is to be shared. News is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. God has told us to go and preach this gospel to all creation. So we are to guard it and we are to we are to proclaim it. Look at what Jude says here about it. First, the faith must be defended, he says. We are to earnestly contend for the once delivered to the saints' faith. If we were to render this from the original language, most exactly it would sound like this. It's the once delivered to the saints' faith. This word contend here carries the idea of agonizing. It is to fight or struggle with intense effort, hence the earnestly contend. And it is in the continuous sense. We can never drop our guard. We are to be always contending for the faith. It is continuous. We are to be agonizing. It, it, it begs a question of us that must be asked, though. What do you contend most earnestly for? What is it that you contend most earnestly for? Often I think in the comfort of the American church, we can drift into contending for things that's not the gospel. More than we contend for the gospel. But the gospel is the greatest treasure. What do you contend most earnestly for? And we need to hear this, brothers and sisters. We cannot contend for a faith that we don't know first. We can't contend for something that we don't know. Do we know this faith? Are we growing in this faith? Are we growing in the knowledge of this gospel? Do we know it? If we don't know it, we can't contend for it. Second, Jude says that this is the faith that has been delivered. It's been delivered to us by God. It's his faith. It's his gospel. Now, Paul is going to refer to it in the New Testament as my gospel, our gospel, but not in a creative sense, not in an ownership sense. We only own it because God has given it to us. We are stewards of it. We share in it, but it's his to define. I like what Adrian Rogers says. It is divine in its conception. It comes from God. It is God breathed. It's given to us. It is complete in its content, he says. He's given us everything that we need. 
It's complete in its content. And then finally, it is absolutely unique in its character. It has been delivered to us. You see, God's word is the standard for truth. It is the measuring stick we are to use in evaluating any other claims of truth. So not only is it the truth, it is the measuring stick that we use to measure any claims to truth. And it's here that we need to make some important statements. Our feelings are not a sufficient standard for truth. Our experience is not a sufficient standard for truth. God's word must inform those things. My feelings and my experience are birthed out of a heart that the word tells me is deceitfully sick. I can't trust myself to delineate the truth. God has given me the faith. He has given me his word to measure the validity of truth. And Jude tells us that it's given to us, given to the saints once for all. It is complete. And it's with that that he issues this warning in verse 4. Let's read it again. So it's fresh on our minds for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Three aspects to this warning. First, we need to beware of those who deceive the church. Beware of those who deceive the church. We need to beware of those who would come in by stealth, often because there is no rear guard. Jude says that these have crept in unnoticed. This is news to his readers. Many of them don't even know that they're in their presence. They have crept in unnoticed, Jude says. They've come in by manners of stealth. One commentator says this, much like the false prophet of Revelation 13, 11, who looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. These foes mean to deceive and destroy, though they present themselves as tender and harmless. Did you know that every falsehood contains a hint of truth? I'll go further than that. There's a lot of falsehood that contains a whole lot of truth. But it's still false because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And might I submit to you this morning that most of the falsehood that we hear in our culture comes from some of the most beautiful smiles? It creeps in. It's deceptive. It's not blatant. It's not overt. It's deceptive. This is why we need to be on our guard. Second, Jude says we must be beware, we must beware of those who distort God's grace. These would be the ones who pose the question that Paul asked rhetorically at the beginning of Romans six, the same passage that Troy read this morning before the baptism. And the rhetorical question there at the beginning is, hey, can we just continue on sinning because grace abounds? This would be one of the people that would ask that question. Well, now that we're under grace, we can have license to do whatever we want to do. And what is Paul's response to that? May it never be. May that thought be accursed because of who we are. Because we are dead to sin and alive to God, having been united with Christ. That's his response. But these people would be the ones who ask this question. These would be the people that twist and distort to suit their own desires. These would be those that would diminish a pursuit of holiness because I want to do what I want to do. I want to be who I want to be. Listen, brothers and sisters, freedom in Christ doesn't enable us to do whatever we want. Freedom in Christ enables us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
That's what freedom in Christ leads to. It enables us to live toward who he promises we will be. So that we can know him fully, even as we are fully known, as we cast our gaze and fix our eyes on the completion of this salvation that we have in Christ. It's going to cause us to run after it with all of our heart. Our vision has to be captivated with that, though. May we never come to the place that we just cheapen grace to the place where I can do whatever I want to do. But that's what these in the church were doing. Third aspect, beware of those who deny our Lord. You know, who Jesus is and what he has done presents the great dividing line for us, doesn't it? We have to stand firm on that. Jesus defines who he is. We don't get to do that. We don't get to change who he is to fit what I want to do or fit who I want him to be. And Jude says here uh, that, that these deny Jesus as the only sovereign and Lord. That's strong language. And what we need to understand is because they have come in through deceptive means, they're not denying Jesus' deity. They're not making overt, false doctrinal claims or else people would have known them. They would have seen them. Listen to the distinction. What they deny is not his deity, his person or his work. What they deny is his lordship. They deny who he is as Lord. So they may say all the right things doctrinally. They may assent to all the right propositional claims, but they don't assent to who Jesus is as Lord through their life. They deny that aspect of it. Jim Shaddix from Southeastern writes this. By their sinful life and exploitation of grace, they deny his lordship in and over their lives. They are a law unto themselves, accountable to no one, including the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of such people. That leads one commentator to sum everything up with this. We must contend for the faith without being contentious about faith. And why is it that we are free from having to be contentious about the faith? Jude writes it right there. Because these are already condemned. It's not our place to condemn. Judgment is with the Lord. We are to judge the substance and leave the judgment of people up to the Lord. So we can rest in that so we don't have to be contentious about it. And then we come to this middle section that's just full of all kinds of goodies for us. To consider what in the world Jude is talking about. But the truth is, when Jude wrote this to his original audience, they understood all of this. They were familiar with all of these stories. We're just not. We don't have the information that allows us to be familiar with all of it. Some of it rings uh, based on things that we've read in the Old Testament, things that we know to be true. But some of it, we're like, what? What I want us to see through this section, and we're just going to read through it, is Jude is modeling here the importance of remembering Jude is modeling the importance of remembering. So take your copy of God's word there and let's just read verse five through verse 16. And then I'll summarize it for us. And then we can move on to Jude's encouragement to us. Beginning of verse five. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Do you hear what these who have crept in unannounced are doing? But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead the Lord rebuke you. He left the rebuke to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. They are there. They are with you. When you celebrate the supper together, they are with you, participating in it with you, Jude writes. But listen to his, listen to the way he describes them as they feast with you without fear. Nobody's calling them on it. They go about it as if they're okay as members of this church. Shepherds feeding themselves, Jude writes, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Do you get this picture that on the surface everything is okay because nobody is dealing with it? But underneath, the threat, the danger that's there is just foaming and churning. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. How many times can you say the word ungodly? And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Are you getting a picture? I'm appreciative to Jim Shaddix, who I quoted a few minutes ago for summarizing this, just walking back through it. This is what Jude is wanting the church to see. Remember the danger of unbelief. Remember the dishonor of rebellion. Remember the destiny of the immoral. Watch the sins of rebellion. Watch the sins of arrogance. Watch the sins of ignorance. God condemns the ungodly because of their decisions. God condemns the ungodly because of their deception. God condemns the ungodly because it is their destiny. God condemns the ungodly because of their deeds. Brothers and sisters, do you know that one of the primary functions that we have in one another's life as the church is to remind each other? When we stand to sing on a Sunday morning, it is not a passive affair. That is all of us preaching to each other, reminding each other. When we go into God's word together, we are reminding each other of God's truth, reminding each other of the folly of error and the judgment of God. We are reminding each other of those things. Preaching, so much of preaching is reminding. And Jude is reminding us this morning, even though we don't understand all of the stories. We are reminded that these things are true. And so now we come to the encouragement of Jude in light of this. He's going to tell us 
that we need to walk in wisdom in order to persevere. And there are four aspects of this. And this is where I really want us to dive deep this morning. The first, beginning in verse 17, is that we need to be aware. Look at verses 17 through 19. Jude writes, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. First off, do you hear Jude's designation for the church? Once again, reminding them who they are. Beloved. Beloved. Remember, he says, this means to remain aware, remain sober minded. And the truth is, this has already been told to us through God's word. So this should not take us by surprise. We should not be taken by surprise or shocked at the presence of scoffers, at the presence of false teachers that should not take us by surprise. The Bible has told us that this is going to happen. And he says something about the time, the character and the lifestyle. First, the time, he says, in the last time. When is the last time? From the time that Jesus ascended until the time he comes back. The last time is today. The last time we are living in it. The last time was in Jude's day. They were living in it. This is the last time. And during the last time, there will be those who rise up that fit this description. What about the character? Well, he refers to them as scoffers. Scoffers. The word carries the idea of mocker. But I want us to see that there are two primary ways that scoffers are identified in the scriptures. First is in the way that you would think a mocker would be one who mocks. David speaks of such scoffers in Psalm 42 when he says this. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You hear the mocking in that? Where is your God? Verse nine, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do you go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's a mocking. It's mocking God's people. It's mocking God. It's mocking the belief that that we hold in God. And we are very understanding of that. We see that in our culture. But listen, brothers and sisters, I don't think that that's the kind of mocker that Jude is talking about here. Because once again, he's speaking of those that have crept in unnoticed. If you're openly mocking, you're going to be noticed. Okay, so it's different than that. It's a different designation for scoffer. This one has to do with religious charlatans who desire influence. That is mocking God. If not in an open way, in an intent way. That's what I believe Jude is talking about. And it's spoken of in the New Testament. Uh, This is... People who would use the people of God for their own means. Okay, listen to how Jesus identified this in Matthew seven. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. These are the ones that come in dressed up like a sheep, but they are wolves. Acts 20, Paul warns of this. In verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's deceptive mocking. It's mocking the person and character of God, but not in an overt way. They may use all the right language and dress the right way and fit right in, but they are mocking God in their intentions to earn influence. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, their intention for the church is to use the church for their own means. This is the type of mocker, scoffer that Jude is referring to here. And third, lifestyle. He says some things about their lifestyle, that they will pursue their own ungodly passions. This is evil desires because they are worldly people. They will follow their natural instinct. And because of that, they are devoid of the spirit. They are not led by the spirit. They are not affected by the spirit. They are not pursuing the spirit. One commentator said it this way, claiming to be saved without following the way of the king. Oh, my gosh, this is our culture. People of God. Claiming to be saved without following the way of the king. You see, they're not seeking to please him. They're seeking to use him. I can't think of a greater way to mock God. And what are their effects? Of the presence of their presence within the body, they cause division. You see, their presence and influence does not promote unity. They don't promote unity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if I am calling you to be courageous in dealing with this, I need to model it. Please hear my pastoral heart. We have allowed two exceedingly dangerous aspects of our culture to creep into the presence of the church. And that is the celebrity culture and the political culture. And both of these cultivate a breeding ground for scoffers. And there are an abundance of those in both of these camps and both of these aspects of our culture that want nothing less than to use the people of God for their own objectives. We need to be wide awake. We need to hear this warning. We cannot measure it by the language. They may speak the right language. They may say the right things. They may look the right way. They may look like they fit in. But that's not the measure. And here's the truth. Because we live in a technologically advanced age, because of social media, because of podcasts, because of 24-hour news cycles, because of constant information overload to us, they do not have to be physically present to have a presence. The question is, who is influencing you? Who is influencing you? What are their motives? And here is the big question, brothers and sisters. Write this down. Think on this this week. Are their objectives aligned with God's objective? That is a question that we as believers must ask in our culture. Are the voices that are influencing me moving in line with God's objective? You know what God's objective is? Reconciliation of all things in him as he advances the gospel, as he advances his kingdom. God's agenda doesn't have to do with any, any kind of preserving this world. It is all about advancing a kingdom. 
Who is influencing us and are they moving in rhythm with God's objective? What are faithful voices saying? If I can be so bold to say this. These past 12 or 13 months has taken a toll on pastors. I'm very anxious when I see the church being so quickly to denounce voices that have been proven faithful for decades and so quickly buying everything that those outside of Christ will say. Now, I'm not saying that those who have been faithful in the past should not be scrutinized. Brothers and sisters, you you should scrutinize everything I'm saying this morning. But we need to be careful that we don't dismiss faithful voices because they're not saying what we want them to say to us. And we shouldn't be so quick to buy into everything that somebody else says because it aligns with what we want to believe. I'll leave that there. Are their objectives aligned with God's objective? Be aware. Two, be intentional in your own pursuit. Verses 20 and 21, listen to what Jude says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. How do we guard against the influence of scoffers? Pursuit. How do we defend? Pursue. We don't bunker ourselves in. We don't wrap blankets around ourselves. We pursue. We pursue Christ. Listen to this. It is in spiritual idleness that we are in greatest danger of being taken captive. It is in spiritual idleness that we are in greatest danger of being taken captive. And you hear the contrast here. But you, our responsibility is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait a second. I thought that God keeps me in his love. So is it true that I keep myself in in, in his love? Which is it? Yes. Yes. He keeps us, but we are to pursue him. We are to pursue him. It's a both and. And what does Jude say that we have to do in keeping ourselves in the love of God? First, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This holy faith has the idea of what is central to Christ, focused on his word. It is us abiding in the word of God, pursuing God through his word, just reading his word, memorizing his word, discussing his word, being saturated by his word. That is our pursuit. It is to pursue this holy faith, what is central to Christ and focused on his word. But it also is balanced with praying in the Holy Spirit. This isn't a picture of attunement with the Spirit's will. And how do we come to be attuned with the Spirit's will? We abide in his word. We abide in his word. We pray in the Holy Spirit. And in that, we keep yourselves in the love of God. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he says. Abide in my love. That word abide. Especially in our culture, we have to abide. We can't let the busyness of our lives keep us from abiding. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Listen to Paul's prayer for us in Philippians 1. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We are to pursue him in word and in prayer. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. Prayer is so much more about pursuit than it is petition. Don't just be about petition in your prayer. The primary function of prayer is pursuit. Do you know that God always answers our prayers? Because he always gives us himself. And that's what we need. More than what we're praying for, we need him. Prayer is more about pursuit than it is petition. Thirdly, he says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. This is an active waiting for the end of our salvation. It's a hastening for that day to come. Once again, as I fix my eyes on his end for me, then my feet are going to be swift and running towards that. I like what one commentator said, eschatology, which is thinking about end times. It's a focus on the end times, a study on the end times. He says eschatology keeps the present in focus. I like that. It fixes our eyes on the path we are to run. And so each step is gauged by moving in that direction. So, to summarize, the gospel shapes our past, it shapes our present, and it shapes our future. The gospel is not just in the past tense, brothers and sisters. The gospel shapes our past, our present, and our future. The question is, do we know the gospel? I enjoy Twitter. I enjoy Twitter. I like it much more than other social media platforms. I like it because it's just bite-sized bits of information, and I can kind of take what I want and kind of scroll through. Probably too much sometimes. But I also like to look at conversations that happen on Twitter. And it's, in the, the, it's within one of those conversations the other day that I saw that Beth Moore had written this, and I think she is spot on. This puts words to a thought that I've had for some time and have tried to flesh it out. She says it right. She says this. We need to hear this. She's talking about the American church, church in our context. She says this. I don't think we know the gospel. I think we know the plan of salvation. I don't think we know the gospel. I think we know the plan of salvation. Not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that Jesus is saying over us, my people do not know me. And that, brothers and sisters, is because of a lack of pursuit. Do you know the gospel? Are you growing in your knowledge of the gospel? Are you pursuing the Lord in order to know him? Listen to these words. Building, praying, waiting. The Christian faith is an active faith. It's not a passive faith. It is an active faith. And defending against the influence of false teachers and scoffers is active. Listen to this. The more we press into what is genuine, the less likely we are to fall into what is false. It is through a gaze on the genuine that we understand what is false. We can't be left up to our own devices to try to figure that out. Because our feelings and our experience will betray us. And at the end of the day, we will abandon what is genuine for what we want to believe. The more we press into what is 
genuine, the less likely we are to fall into what is false. So this earnest contending for the faith is to be an ongoing private affair within the passionate pursuit of my own life long before it is a public contending for the faith. And sometimes I think we get that backwards. We're busy contending for the faith publicly without ever contending for the faith in my own heart. Brothers and sisters, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. That contending starts right here first. I'm contending for the faith by pursuing Christ. The third thing, Jude tells us that we need to be conduits of mercy. Conduits of mercy. Look at verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude highlights three groups, each with specific instructions on ministry to them. The the first group, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. The church should be the most welcoming place on the planet for anybody who doubts. It should be the most welcoming place for doubts and for doubters. Because the truth is, we all face doubts and struggles. We've just learned to act like we don't. We all face doubts and struggles. We are all prone to be influenced by false ideas. We are all prone to be taken captive by feelings and experience. The question for this is, how much confidence do we have in the gospel? How much confidence do we have in the gospel? Because here's the truth. Our willingness to welcome and show mercy to doubters will directly correlate to our confidence in the gospel. Do we trust that the gospel is sufficient? Do we trust that it contains supreme truth? Do we trust its durability? Are we growing in our gospel knowledge? I want to have such a big vision of the gospel and trust in its supremacy so much that I will not shy away from any conversation, from any ideology or philosophy in our culture. Bring it on! And instead of going around playing philosophical whack-a-mole, maybe we need to be more open to talking and taking the gospel to people. The question is, do we know it? I think we play whack-a-mole because we don't know the gospel. Do we trust that it is all-sufficient? I want to say to you today that if you're struggling with doubts or you're struggling in your faith, if you come to a pastor or an elder, or a deacon, or a life group leader, you will not be met with condemnation. And I pray that it would be the case that if anybody in our church is dealing with doubts or dealing with, with struggling in their faith, that they can go to any member of our church and not receive condemnation, that instead they will receive mercy. You come to me, we'll roll up our sleeves, and we'll go to God's Word, and we'll work through it, because I believe the gospel is big enough to provide the answer. Is that our confidence? The second group, Jude said, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This speaks to those who have moved beyond doubting and questions to the place of initial compromise. And what are we to do? We're to snatch them out of the fire. Do you hear the risk in this? Do you hear the risk that's there? In order to snatch somebody out of the fire, where do I have to go? Into the fire. I've got to go after them. The question is, do I love you enough to run into the fire? Do I love you enough to risk our relationship 
Do I love you enough to risk being potentially maligned or labeled? Because that happens very quickly in our culture, especially within the church. It shouldn't be so. Risk being potentially maligned or labeled. I'm going to risk being drugged into controversy to come after you when I see you in doctrinal danger. Brothers and sisters, this is a vitally important part or aspect of discipleship. Are we willing to run into the fire to snatch each other out? Here's a very important question. Are we growing enough in the truth to actually know when others that we love are in danger? This is inherent in Jude's message to us. And here's something that we need to hear in the American church. The cultural foundations of autonomy crumble in the body of Christ. We are not a collection of islands. We are a body. And as a family, as a body, we should be able to go each other with genuine faces and say, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. You know what? I'm doubting with this. Man, let me tell you something. When students come to me with doubts, the first thing I do is commend them for it. Praise the Lord. Because that, you know what that shows me? That shows me that their pursuit is genuine. If they don't truly want to know Jesus, if they don't truly want to know the truth, they'll just brush that doubt underneath and not let anybody know. The fact that you've come to me shows me that you really want to know the truth. Brothers and sisters, let this be a place of mercy. Let this be a place of mercy for strugglers and doubters. May we be marked by that. Group number three, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is a picture of those who have moved even further into acceptance of false teaching or the influencer, uh, the influence of such scoffers and even the scoffers themselves. Believers are to be people of mercy even to our opponents. Do you know that those who oppose us, they are the mission field? They are the mission field. We are called to go to them to mirror God's grace and mercy because you know what? At one time in my sin, I was an enemy of God. Let's not lose sight of our mission field because we're creating enemies. Believers are to be people of mercy. But this encouragement comes with a stern warning, and we need to hear this. We are still to show mercy, but we go about it with fear of ourselves being stained. We need to hear that. Our posture must always be hatred towards sin and falsehood because that's what breaks my relationship with God. I hate that because of what it does to my relationship with God. But also we are to be merciful in love towards all people. Let me summarize it like this. As those who have received mercy, we are to be merciful. We are to warn, but with love. We are to walk with brothers and sisters in seasons of doubt. We are to ask others to walk with us in our own seasons of doubt. We are to run rescue missions that take us to the outskirts of God's judgment so that brothers and sisters might not spiral away from the faith. We are to love with courage. May it be so of Westwood Baptist Church. That we are a people that love each other with courage. Brothers and sisters, this is the basis of our covenant relationship toward one another. That we love courageously. We love courageously. Finally, number four. Be overwhelmed by the king. This is a fitting close. Be overwhelmed by the king. 
Jude wants us to fix our eyes here in verses 24 and 25. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, Jude writes. One of the reasons that we can be free to respond with mercy and love, even to scoffers, even to opponents, is because they stand under God's judgment. Our greatest desire should be to see them rescued. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Just as false teachers are kept for judgment, though, so God's people are kept by his infinite power from stumbling and falling. Are we confident in that? Is our confidence there? I love what Second Peter says. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If I get myself into a situation that I can't see my way out of, God has already given me everything to get out of it. He is keeping me. This word for stumbling here means to fall into sin or error. I don't know about you, but when I stumble, it's usually over something that I don't see. We need to have fervency against those things that are just overtly false, brothers and sisters. Don't hear me not say that. But the greatest danger to the church right now are the things that we don't see. And we can be very nearsighted. He's talking about stumbling. If such stumbling persists unchecked, it can lead to a complete falling away from the faith. And no, you cannot lose your salvation because you're firm in his grip. But it can show that that salvation was never a reality. So we're always on guard with each other. But there is a delicate balance. First, I am in Christ. If I am in Christ, I can be certain that he will keep me. He will finish what he has begun in me. This is my confidence. But it's balanced with another statement. Listen to this. I need to be aware of my own sinfulness and tendency to drift and wonder. I need to abide in the truth so that I may know if I begin to drift into error, I need to remain active in my faith, active in my pursuit. And brothers and sisters, I love you because you're there for me in that way too. Thank you for holding me accountable. Thank you for being willing to snatch me out of the fire if I begin to drift. May we be that for each other. It's a balance. Yes, he keeps me, but I also pursue And I grow in awareness of my own heart and I grow deeper into the truth, into the knowledge of the truth. And notice that this should be a source of great joy for us. That one day, if you are in Christ, one day he is going to present you blameless to the Father. Let me ask this question. In the midst of scoffers, in the midst of a scoffing culture, Are we distinguished by our joy? Our joy that flows out of a confidence in Christ. That should be a distinguishing mark of us is our joy. May we not be distinguished by our fear. We are only distinguished by our joy as we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is never changing. His truth is never changing. His plans, purposes, and will are never changing. And as we end, listen to what Jude says about him in verse 25, one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of Scripture. He says, to the only God, our Savior. Listen to that. The only God who is also our Savior. Amen. That should fire us up. The only God who is our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen, be glory, 
be majesty, be dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's a hard word. It has confronted me this week time and time again. It has brought me face to face with my own sinfulness time and time again. It has brought me face to face with my own desire to believe what I want to believe. That I pray that with this great glimpse at the close of this letter that we would get a refreshed view of you. And Father, we would spend more time pursuing you than standing guard against threat. God, would you do that in our hearts? Would you be that big in our vision? God, would you help us to catch this view of this gospel that is supreme and sufficient? Would you help us to be confident in it even as we pursue you? Even in our weaknesses to look around and see that you have assembled this body together to admonish one another and encourage one another to pursue you together. Father, I pray that you would help us to be real people with one another, to drop our guard and put away this facade that we've got it all figured out and begin to open up with each other so that we might pursue you together. God, would you protect your church? God, I pray that that protection would begin, the byproduct of it would begin as individual members of this church pursue you with unfettered passion. God, that we would know you. And that that knowledge wouldn't just take place in our brains, Lord. It would take place in our hearts and in our hands and our feet. Lord, as we glimpse into these mirrors to see how we are prone to wonder, God, I pray that we would be real about that. And Father, when we see that we are, I pray that you would help us to be quick to repent. And when we see other people around us wondering, our brothers and sisters, that we would be quick to go to them, to rescue them. God, would you give us that kind of love? Father, help us to not be nearsighted. Help us to be aware of the direct threats to our body right here. Father, help me to look for those in my own life first. And God, I pray that we would be so captivated by a genuine vision of who you are out of our pursuit that those things would be quickly identified. And Lord, we would run with confidence to, uh, to rescue each other if we drift. God, thank you for your word. I pray for Gerald as we continue in this study of Revelation. God, I pray that you would continue to use it in the life of this church God, I pray for anybody who is here this morning who is not in Christ, who doesn't have that promise that they are being kept by you, Father, that they would run to you today for the first time, that they would see their need for you, that they would see that your invitation is to come and through repentance and faith experience the same mercy, grace, and love and peace that is available through him. So God, I pray for us now as you've called us to respond to your word. God, help us to do that in a faithful way. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.